Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, in real time here. It's been three weeks since we uh, last met. I've been doing some summer traveling uh, with my family and my son, who's headed off to college soon. So uh, it's been a busy time and some busy times to come. But I should be able to be here for the next three weeks uh, with everybody. So I'm delighted to be back with you guys. Been missing our discussions. Um uh, two quick announcements before I start today. First is that I am delighted to say that our first two regional moots are officially scheduled and ready to go. We should have registration up for those soon. Um, those are New England moot, uh, which is going to be held in Durham, New Hampshire this year. Um, out uh, right near the uh, University of New Hampshire uh, campus up by the seacoast. Uh, really, uh, 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 really fun spot. So I hope that... Uh, uh, New England regional folks will be able to come out there. It's going to be on Saturday, the 25th of September. So Saturday, 25th of September, Durham, New Hampshire, New England moot. Uh, the theme is second breakfast. Uh, so we'll see the uh, call for paper should be out soon. And as I say, registration uh, will be um, uh, will be open soon. Also open soon will be registration for middle moot, which is back out in Waterloo, Iowa again this year on October 9th, uh, Saturday. October 9th. So the 25th of September for New England Moot and the 9th of October for Middle Moot out in Iowa. Um, delighted uh, to, I just can't wait to start up the regional moots again. Uh, so that's going to be really exciting. We are going to have hybrid access to all of our regional moots this year. So if you're not able to attend in person, you will be able to participate uh, virtually. We will, um, uh, I'll be, you know, so we'll have re registration for, uh, uh, for that as well. So, um, all those things will be, so more information on those things to come soon, um, uh, as far as the registration and everything else. And I'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the digital participation and stuff, but, um, I just wanted to make sure that you knew the dates and the places, um, because, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so, Captain Mo, working on Europe, I mean, there, of course, it's mostly about the travel restrictions and stuff until we can make sure that we're able to travel. Honestly, I'm not really even trying to plan any of them for the fall. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that by 2022, you know, by, by next year, so we're, you know, we're doing our annual cycle, um, you know, pretty much following the academic year. So I'm hoping that by next year, maybe in the spring, um, we'll be able to get back to Europe uh, for other moots. So we will... Um, we will uh, we will definitely see. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, so yeah, Cookaboot and Miner were working on uh, Magnolia Moot down in the south. Um, not sure if we're gonna. I, I don't think we'll be in Georgia itself, but uh, we're looking at a couple different locations. We were in Charlotte, North Carolina before, and we could do that again. We're also thinking of uh, perhaps Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, we'll see. We'll see where we end up this year. Um, but. Um, Anyway, um, yeah, so um, regional 
the 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 relaunching of regional moots uh is uh my uh one of my my big excitements uh for this year i'm so i am very much looking forward to that um <clears throat> oh freebird buckeye moot is totally happening um probably not for a while though. it probably won't be until the spring um we're looking buckeye moot probably um april ish early april maybe early march somewhere in there um is what we're looking at for um uh for for buckeye moot haven't uh, nailed down the dates on that one yet but it's happening it is so happening uh definitely um so um anyway cool um, the other quick announcement uh, that I had, you've heard me before talk about um, our Signum Clubs program, uh, which is our uh, extracurricular program uh, in uh, book, our book clubs and uh, creative writing clubs and language clubs uh, for kids, grades 3 through 12. Um, we actually have an opening that I wanted to kind of ask people about. Um, if any of you either are um, teachers or know someone uh, who is a teacher who teaches French, we have an opening for a French teacher that I would really love to uh, that I would really love to fill. So I just wanted to kind of extend that opening. Uh, anybody who uh, knows somebody who teaches French who think would be you know think would be really good you know experience teaching high school kids especially. Um, Tell them to get in touch with us. Send us an email at info at signumu.org. Uh, would love to hear from them and talk to them about that. Have a, an opportunity that just recently arose on that front. So um, anyway, that's... Um, that's 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 the plan. So just wanted to just wanted to, to mention that. All right, let me jump into the text here without further delay. Um, because it's been so long. So remember, the hobbits were talking, <laughs> right? That's as far as we got. Um, we were talking last time about uh, Gandalf um, and his, uh, you know, saying that he was, uh, you know, the only one who didn't have an eye opener. We were discussing what it meant to have an eye opener uh, at the Council of Elrond. So tonight. We're moving on uh, with Bilbo's rather dismissive uh, transition. Well, anyway, said Bilbo, nothing was decided beyond choosing poor Frodo and Sam. I was afraid all the time that it might come to that if I was let off. But if you ask me, Elrond will send out a fair number when the reports come in. Have they started yet, Gandalf? Yes, said the wizard. Some of the scouts have been sent out already. More will go tomorrow. Elrond is sending elves, and they will get in touch with the rangers and maybe with Thranduil's folk in Mirkwood, and Aragorn has gone with Elrond's sons. We shall have to scour the lands all round for many long leagues before any move is made. So cheer up, Frodo. You will probably make quite a long stay here. All right. Um, so I love the transition, the well-anyway transition uh, by Bilbo. Um, I don't think that he is... Well, I, I think there are kind of two options here. So you, you may remember when we were talking about what it meant to have an eye-opener, right? Um, that it wasn't just about, like, receiving surprise information, right? It meant having your, you know, sort of worldview rocked, right, in a sense. Um, there were a lot of eye-openers at, um, uh, at the council. And... Bilbo's well anyway here. On the one hand, he might be merely dismissing the apparent, you know, if we sort of take it on its simplest level. You know, he just said everybody had an eye opener and Gandalf 
you know, uh, banters with him, right? Uh, claiming he was inattentive uh, because he already knew about Gollum's escape. Um, and this could just be Bilbo, this is just sort of Bilbo dismissing it, right, on one level. But it also seems to be, you know, he's he is obviously transitioning, right? Let's Let's go away from talking about what happened at the council, right? And instead look forward and think about what's happening next. Um, Bilbo cuts short the review, which was already fairly short, right? And this, of course, Bilbo was the one who gave the super short synopsis of the council in the first place, right? Uh, summarizing the whole thing as merely talking. Um, and... Um, uh, so it's it's Bilbo does not really seem to want to linger on it. Um, he is kind of downplaying it, although he does mention everybody having an eye opener. Right. So he kind of points out on the one hand, yeah, it was kind of a big deal. Right. There were lots of sort of shocking revelations. But, um, you know, but let's not talk about that. Right. Let's uh, um the only, you know, well, anyway, nothing was decided beyond choosing poor Frodo and Sam. And here he's still contextualizing um, the uh, the the nothing is decided yet. Right. And Pippin's outrage, you know, nothing, nothing decided. You were shut up for hours. Right. How could you not decide anything in all that time? Um, Bilbo does not seem to want to dwell on what happened. Uh, in the council, right? And it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that Bilbo and Frodo don't show any um, any impulse here. Now, obviously, there's much conversation that they may have already had and that they will probably go on to have with Merry and Pippin, um, kind of going over what happened and, and, and stuff, probably. Um, but we don't see any evidence of either one of them, Frodo or, or, Frodo or Bilbo or Sam, any of the three of them really wanting to kind of unpack it, right? Wanting to go over and and ha and and kind of you know rehash and think through and process what happened uh, in the council. Bilbo seems actively desirous to kind of move on, right? And my suspicion here is that um, Bilbo is um, wanting to focus on. Frodo, right? Think about Frodo's response to Merry and Pippin, right? Um, you know, his um, his comments about, you know, being doomed to go on this hopeless quest, a reward, right? Um, in other words, I think that Bilbo can see that Frodo is still uh, a little um, frayed emotionally, right? Um, and uh, Bilbo wants to focus on what happens next for Frodo, right? Um, nothing was decided beyond choosing poor Frodo and Sam. Even that statement, of course, is not exactly true. It was first decided that the ring would be sent to the fire, right? Um, but that's not what's important here, right? The main thing is that choosing poor Frodo and Sam. Now, his word poor is interesting, right? He commiserates with them. He seems to kind of go along, at least to some extent, with Frodo's um, uh, sort of glum uh, comeback, right, to Merry and Pippin. Um, uh, you know, to Merry specifically about being doomed to, uh, to come on this hopeless, uh, hopeless quest. Um, he commiserates with them. They are poor Frodo and Sam uh, uh, to, to Bilbo here, 
right? But at the same time, I don't think that he's merely entering into the spirit that Frodo was saying. I think that he's going to be, that he's working to hand, to sort of head that off a little bit. Now, Cook of Wooten Minor, I agree with you um, that um, Bilbo may also feel that he's responsible for this landing on Frodo's shoulders and wants to try to participate in charting their course as a way of remaining uh, part of what he started. Yes, yeah, and I think especially the first part of that, Cook, I, I think that um, he does feel responsible, that... Um, um, as the next sentence, I think, demonstrates. I was afraid all the time that it might come to that if I was let off. Uh, and again, even his characterizing it of, uh, as being let off, like some, you know, well, some terrible duty, right, that uh, he was willing to volunteer for and volunteered for seriously, but was let off um, having to do that. So the poor Frodo and Sam, the let off phrasing shows that he is, um, you know, he's is expressing sympathy with Frodo's feelings. Um, But notice where he goes immediately after this. But if you ask me, Elrond will send out a fair number when the reports come in. Have they started yet, Gandalf? This seems to be the first gesture Right. I would say in that last in those last two sentences, there are two separate gestures towards encouraging Frodo. Right. First, he's not just going to they're not just going to send Frodo and Sam off by themselves. Right. Um, That's the question. Right. That's the question that they've been debating that Merry and Pippin are really invested in is, you know, uh, who are their companions going to be? Right. Pippin's like there's got to be someone with intelligence in the party. Remember. So, um. Uh, you know, is he going to have companions? How many companions is he going to have? Um, how selective is that group going to be? You know, um, and uh, here Bilbo is opining that they're going to send out a fair number, right? It's not just going to be, you know, the two of them and Aragorn or the two of them and Gorfindel or something like that. Um, it's going to be a fair number. And Kurtzimus, you're right. Nine versus nine is indeed a fair number. Um but um, uh, but I agree. Yeah. Now, Fourth Dauntless, I think that that's a really good point. Um, uh, Fourth Dauntless says Bilbo must ha- seems to have a genuine insight into Elrond's thought process here. No one else seems to know how large the party will be, which is a little surprising. Yes, yes. And of course, we remember that this, at least in my reading, was what Sam was responding to. Right when Sam jumped up and found like what it was that prompted Sam to finally break his silence and say something at the end of the Council of Elrond um, was the possibility, right, which seemed to be looming horribly in his mind at that point, that Frodo was going to be sent off alone, Um, that all of this talk about, you know, uh, weakness and small hands and um, not sending any strong people and everything was going to lead to him just like saying, well, we maximize our chances by minimizing the the apparent odds of success. So let's send Frodo all by himself and that'll be uh, logically the best possible uh, odds that we have, right? Uh, Because it's the worst possible odds. Um, Anyway, Sam seems to be so concerned about that that he speaks up. Bilbo is sort of addressing that in a sense as well, right? And he doesn't think Elrond is going to think that way. In fact, that Elrond is going to send out um, is going to send out a fair number. Um, also, he mentions the reports coming in, right? When the reports come in, have they started yet, Gandalf? Um, Bilbo knows a good deal more 
uh, it would seem. Uh, certainly than, uh, than Merry and Pippin, but I suspect even than Frodo and Sam. Um, Frodo himself doesn't seem to know about the plans. Bilbo is immediately thinking ahead to the next logical step, which he anticipates Elrond is going to do. Right? Elrond is going to send out a bunch of scouts to get reports of the surrounding area. And he's going to get to work on that right away, right? So he asks Gandalf this uh, fairly knowing question, right? Have they started yet, Gandalf? He doesn't ask, like, they are sending scouts out, aren't they, right? Like, he knows Elrond is going to do this, right? Um, and so he is anticipating that they probably would will have been sent out. So have they started yet, Gandalf, he asks, expecting the answer yes. Um, and he gets the answer yes uh, from Gandalf. And again, this also, I think is designed to be a reassurance to Frodo. Um, Yes, were you chosen? Yes. You know, did this uh, uh, undesirable lot fall to you by your own choice and everything? But like, you know, did this fall to you? Yes. Um, Do I pity you for this? Yes. Do I feel, um, as Coco was suggesting before, a little bit... um, a little bit of residual guilt, right? That uh, this thing that I started has kind of uh, has kind of fallen uh, to Frodo. Yes, yes, I do. But the picture that I take from those last couple sentences here is, but don't forget, guys, we're all in this together, right? This is a big deal. The entire energies of the good guys are going to be focused on your support. Like, don't think that this is just going to be a solo quest. It's not. Or even a duo quest, right, with you and Sam. Um, it's not only that he, Bilbo, is confident that Elrond is going to send out a fair number of people. He's going to give you a bunch of companions to go with you and help you on this journey. But also, all of Rivendell is mobilizing right now, right, um, to advise, help, um you know, indirectly, uh, as, um, as best as, uh, as best as they can. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Trifle says it's possible the scouts were decided upon after Sam sits down at the end of the last chapter. The council doesn't end there. Yeah, no, I agree. It is possible. Um, I mean, the cut at the end of the chapter, um, you're right, Trifle. It's not like, that is the, um, um, you know, everybody gets up and leaves, <laughs> you know, after that uh, comment from Sam. Um, they may have talked about it and decided it then. Um, but um, uh, but I don't know. I mean, uh, um, it's possible. It's possible. Um, I mean, I guess there's nothing to say. There's nothing here that shows that Frodo doesn't know this. Right. Um, it could just be purely for Marion Pippin's benefit that he's referring to this. It's possible. Um, but um, yes, of course, others are reminding us that um, there are. Um, uh, that, that, you know, people had been being sent out already. Right. So um, there was already kind of scouting going on. And yes, I don't doubt that, you know, I'm sure they didn't come back from the fight at the Ford, right? And uh, and then be wait for several days until finally, you know, bestirring themselves to go out and try to figure out what happened with the Nazgul. Like, I'm pretty sure they've been looking uh, for the immediate aftermath of the flood um, uh, for some time. But, but clearly, 
the sending out of scouts is definitely an extra um, uh, an extra step here. Um, now, Nancy, that's a really good question. Um, Nancy asks, were Eladon and Elro here late editions like Arwen, or were they there from the start? I'm trying to remember, Nancy. I think they were there. I, I'm, I'm trying to recall specific references to them. But I think they were there. I mean, I think they were there. Any of you who have The Return of the Shadow might look it up and see if they're referred to in The Return of the Shadow. Um, frankly, or The Treason of Isengard, either one, because um, Arwen is not until very, very late. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think... I don't believe... I don't think El, I don't think Elrond was childless beforehand. It's just that Arwen and the Aragorn romance didn't exist initially. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, Emily, it is quite possible that um, the outcome of the it was, since uh, I, you know, as I've been arguing, I think that Elrond and Gandalf both had a pretty clear idea of where the council was headed, right, of what the basic conclusion was going to be. Um, and Gandalf, I think, more confidently, even than Elrond, knew exactly, you know, had a, a clearer idea that Frodo was going to be the ring bearer. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, could they have had them, like, standing by and waiting? Might they have left already, you know, even before the end of the council? Um, it is uh, it is possible, as there are very few outcomes of the council that are imaginable for which not having information about the surrounding countryside would be good. Right. Uh, anything that they, even if they had decided to do nothing and hold the ring and hope that, you know, they could defend it or something, you know, even if they tried one of the more passive, um, uh, solutions, they'd still want to know what was going on. Um, but okay. JJ doesn't see any mention of them in the return of the shadow or the treason of Isengard. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't have any clear recollection of, I don't remember, they don't stick in my head from when we were doing, um, uh, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series in Mythgard Academy. They don't stick in my head as being a late edition like Arwen, but it's possible. It's possible. I don't, I also don't have any specific memory of them being there either. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Trifle says the comprehensive index is only putting mentions of them in volumes eight and nine. Okay. Well, hang on. Is there reference in eight? Really? Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. In the War of the Ring. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Getting my volume numbers wrong. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Arden Cran, remember, they will show up. Um, the Eladon and Elro here will be at the Battle of Pelennor Field. They'll come down with the Rangers uh, later on. Yeah. Um, but they're always very peripheral characters. I mean, uh, there's certainly no solid, just if you just judge internally by the evidence of the text, um, 
there's nothing that suggests that they are, you know, an integral part of the narrative early on, right? They could easily have been squeezed in because there are only a few references to them. Um, they're a little bit better integrated than Arwen um, into the story, but not too much. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, Kurtzimus, I can believe that it's a squeezing situation. I agree. It, it's consistent with it. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so what's up with the scouts here? Gandalf says, Some of the scouts had been sent out already. More will go tomorrow. Elrond is sending elves, and they will get in touch with the rangers, and maybe with Randul's folk in Mirkwood. And Aragorn has gone with Elrond's sons. Okay. So, I've no doubt, as several of you are suggesting, that there has been some relatively continuous scouting going on, um, not only since Frodo arrived, but before that, as evidenced by Glorfindel being sent out and others being sent out in other directions looking for Frodo. Um, so we know that there has been a whole bunch of general scouting that has been happening. Um, but scouts are now being sent out with a new purpose, because the decision has been made. Um, the scouts would have been sent out with different purposes. They still would have sent scouts out no matter what, as I, as I say, that seems fairly clear. Um, but the scouts are now being sent out with a new mission, and that is to try to figure out how the party should travel. Right? By what ways are they going to go? Are they going to cross the mountains? Are they going to go? You know, how are they going to go? How are they going to go? What is the safest route for them to take? And what exactly are they facing? Remember, they don't know. Um, there's a lot they don't know yet, right? They don't know what happened with the Nazgul, but it's not just that, right? It's not just that because they're going far. Um, Elrond is sending elves, and they will get in touch with the rangers. And maybe with Thranduil's folk in Mirkwood. So there are scouts being sent all the way over the mountains to Mirkwood. Are they scouting the? Um, um, are they scouting the the roads over the mountains, the passes over the mountains? That probably has to be part of what they're doing, trying to figure out. Remember, remember what happened last time. <laughs> By last time, I mean the Hobbit. Um, in The Hobbit, you, will, you may recall that at the end, the beginning of chapter four, I should say, when they leave Rivendell, they are sent off and there's this whole paragraph which emphasizes how dangerous it is to cross the mountains in the wild. But fortunately for Bilbo and his friends, um, they have been, uh, they have been set on the right road to the right paths, right? Because they have their wise friend Elrond and uh, their wise guide, uh, you know, their wise, wise guide, the wizard Gandalf. And so they knew the right road to the right path uh, to take over the to take over the mountains, which, of course, turns out to be tragically untrue. Right. Uh, that, in fact, the paths, um, their information, the information of their good and wise friends, Gandalf and Elrond, is antiquated. Right. And the goblins have now laid you know, traps, their front porch now goes off onto that pass. And so the advice of Elrond and Gandalf has turned out to be almost catastrophically wrong, in fact. Um, so there's almost a sense in which um, 
they don't want to do that again, <laughs> right? Um, let's uh, let's not. Uh, and all the ponies died, <laughs> Jato. Exactly, exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, of course, Fort Thoughtless, as you point out, um, the misfortune of being captured by the goblins is only the first of the several misfortunes that lead them to the unique good fortune, not only of completing their mission, uh, but also of the finding of the ring. So it's not like no good came of it, right? And yet, uh, it still was clearly poor, uh, poor, poor planning. And Mad Violinist, I agree, we do need to make sure that the ponies... Uh, do a little better this time <laughs> than last time, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, so okay, yeah. Bricktails is asking they can't go down through the gap of Rohan. So is there any other option aside from the General Moria area? This is interesting because on the one hand, in the Hobbit, it sounds like there are several passes that can be taken. Um, uh. Not all of them equally good, necessarily, but there are several passes which can, in theory, be taken. Um, in The Lord of the Rings, he seems to have limited that somewhat. There's, there's, there's the Redhorn Gate, right? Um, and there's, um, you know, there's that one trip over the mountains. There's the, uh, there's the um, way under the mountains, of course, which is much less usually taken. And then, of course, there's the Gap of Rohan in the south. Um, it does not sound anymore like there are a wide number of uh, paths to take over the mountains. Um, partly, I think that this is... Um, uh, partly, I think that this is due to increased world building on Tolkien's part. Like he, he knows the mountains better now. Uh, he's worked out the histories much more clearly. Um, uh, he, he has a clear idea, um, of this. It is possible, um, Michael, that, um, some of the other passes could be too far north for a trip to Mordor. Though, Michael, I would think they could still be, um, they could still theoretically be in play, though. And again, that might be one of the things that's being scouted, right? The Redhorn Gate is the only one in the Lord of the Rings that gets mentioned, not just during the journey of the, um, of the, uh, 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 of the company, but in most other contexts as well. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, you're right also, Matt, that's a really good point, that they're planning to cross the mountains in winter, which also presumably limits their options, uh, a fair bit. And I absolutely agree, uh, there. Um, yeah, so let's say there are a bunch of passes that don't get named and don't get mentioned many other times. Um, in which case, this has got to be one of the major things that the scouts are trying to figure, right? Because remember, what are the implications? What are the implications of the Nazgul showing up up here, right? Like they did up in Bree and the Shire and being right there on the outskirts of Rivendell. Um, has there been, have they, were they the, 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 the leading figures of this wave of scouts, spies, um, even, you know, uh, uh, you know, armed, uh, groups. I mean, it's possible, right? Um, Gondor no longer keeps secure the crossings of the river, right? So who knows what Sauron has been able to do if the Nazgul have 
come? Um, how long can it be? I mean, that's obviously by itself the worst case scenario, right? I mean, like, it doesn't get worse than the Nazgul coming out. Um, but there are others too. Remember, even Gandalf back in chapter, you know, back in Bag End, um, in book one, chapter two, was still saying things, you know, was still worried about the spies of the enemy being all over the place, right? How much more is that to be feared now that the Nazgul have come out, right? The Nazgul could have made more spies of the enemy. Um, the Witch King, right, could have, you know, daunted and suborned um, other local people who hadn't previously been in the service of Mordor, as we see in Bree, right? We get a taste of that and see how that could work. So who knows how much damage has already happened, right? Also, remember what Gandalf reported about the um, sort of the rumor and evidence of the passing of the Nazgul that he encountered during his ride down to Orthanc, right? There's um, their presence here. It changes things by itself. In addition to the fact that, again, they could just be the first of many, uh, you know, groups or uh, scouts or spies or emissaries um, that Sauron has sent out, um, they also will have changed things themselves uh, by their very presence. So what are they facing? What kind of opposition are they facing? What kind of, uh, what kind of enemy, uh, you know, spies or um, ambushes might they have to fear when they're headed out. And as Nancy says, that's not even a mention. Saruman's connections uh, in the Shire. Yes. Now, I'm trying to think of what evidence Aragorn is going to respond to the finding of uh, Longbottom Leaf in uh, Orthanc, you know, in uh, in Isengard as a revelation, right? Like that's... Uh, um, that he means to talk to Gandalf about, right? Um, to what extent Gandalf knows about this? Um, does Gandalf know or suspect or believe that Saruman has had dealings with the Shire yet? I don't know what evidence there is for that. Footnote. I know about the evidence in Unfinished Tales. In... The essay, not the essay on the Astari, um, I think it's in The Hunt for the Ring, in Unfinished Tales. Um, Tolkien says that Gandalf knew all along that Saruman uh, had visited the Shire and had taken up smoking pipeweed. Um, but I am discounting that. As I can. I'm discounting that. Um, it is... I find that section of The Hunt for the Ring really problematic. Um, uh, we can have a conversation about that at another time, but I find that section really problematic. So I'm not um, going to be uh, worrying about that right now. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, Bricktails, you're right that Saruman says that Gan that he, he knew that Gandalf had been, you know, his, uh, his skulking place in the Shire, right? Um, suggesting he had spies up that way. Yes, possibly. Um, though there are many ways he could have learned about that. I don't think Gandalf has not made a secret 
of his friendship with the Shire folk, um, you know, over the years. And he's been friends with the Shire folk already for decades, uh, many decades by this time. Um, but um, yeah, exactly. As that's Bjorn Osana was just saying, Gandalf hasn't been keeping that a secret. So um, I don't think that there would be any reason to believe that Saruman is... Um, uh, is spying like he would only know that uh, by uh, by spying, um, but um, uh, but yeah yeah I think it's um, um, it's certainly possible and yes you're right we will get something from Elrond fairly soon that suggests that he suspects that um, more on that I guess uh, in a bit uh, when we get there but um, anyway the point is. We uh, we don't know. They, there's there's a lot that they don't know about the circumstances around them. What are they going to be up against? It is very important that they not be discovered. In, in a sense, of course, this is like a big picture version of exactly the same conversation. Um, the, the beginning of chapter three is kind of beginning the same way that the beginning of the previous chapter three began. Right after the big council in which the thing was decided in chapter two, right, both the shadows of the past and the council of Elrond, at the beginning of chapter three starts with uh, Gandalf talking to Frodo about setting out, and then talking about the plan for how they will set out, how they will set out, and um, how they'll try to keep their secret. Right, remember that's the conversation in which Frodo. Um, uh, says he's going to set out for Rivendell and not leave an address at the post office. And, uh, you know, and then he, of course, decides to go move to Buckland. Um, but um, uh, so here we have the same kind of pattern again, right? Um, the enemy must not know at first, for as long as possible, what direction they have set off. Um My suspicion, based on what was said in the Council of Elrond, it seems to me most likely that Elrond, Gandalf, and the rest of them are going to be trying to fake Sauron out. To fake him out into thinking that they're taking the ring to the sea. Because that's, as Elrond himself says during the Council, that's what they've done too often before. That's the obvious route for them to take. Um, it would seem to be the elves' go-to response. Now, Kirsten has asked, why would Sauron think they're leaving Rivendell at all? Well, they might not. Um, what would Sauron think? Um, what Sauron would think is, now that the ring has been taken to Rivendell, obviously, someone's going to claim it, Right? I mean, clearly. There are a bunch of people in Rivendell who could wield the ring. Well, several, at least, who could wield the ring. Um, and whom Sauron would need to fear if they did. Right? So clearly, that's obviously what's going to happen. Because they're not going to forbear to take up the ring. I mean, what kind of a loser would do that? Right? Um, so that's not really... That's not really a question. The question is which one of them is going to do it and what are they going to do with it. So yes, that's what he would that's what he would suspect most. If they do try to make off with the ring, maybe the elves are big enough cowards that they're going to do their little elf thing 
and run off to the ocean and try to scamper back uh, towards the Valar, right? That would be a kind of an elfish, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of an elfish trick, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's um, either way. What they don't want is for him to have any clear idea of where the ring is. So we've got to, uh, uh, we've got to, you know, watch out for that. Um, yeah, um, I, right. Bjorning, that's what I was just thinking of. Gandalf says later that Sauron will look for conflict among his enemies as the ring is claimed, and then look for an offensive against him with the power of the ring. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and that's likely the kind of thing that his um, spies are going to be looking for. Um, JJ says this could also explain holding back the Nazgul. One possibility would uh, be someone taking the ring to Minas Tirith, which means the war effort needs to be stepped up to try to cut them off. So the Nazgul would be held back to aid the war effort rather than sending them out as searchers. Also, remember, sending out the Nazgul, that's a commitment. You know? I mean... Um, I mean, if the Nazgul are off in one place, they're not somewhere else, right? So, um, and also remember another thing. Scattering the Nazgul, though it seems much more efficient, is not necessarily more efficient. The Nazgul are much more powerful when they're all gathered together. Um, so just sending two of them here and one of them over there and two of them there to try to cover all the possible bases. Um, though again, it seems like the, you know, the, the, the shrewdest course, uh, for Sauron to take, um, is not necessarily a good move because alone or in pairs, the Nazgul would have a harder time, um, standing up to, uh, uh, well, a bunch of folks such as Gorvindal, for instance. Um, yeah, I, I don't go so far as to say that I think they probably, um, you know, sent out a bunch of fake ring parties out in other directions and stuff. But um, but I don't know. I don't know if that kind of thing is impossible. Um, what do you think Gorfindel was doing when they left Rivendell, right? Um, um, I can imagine a lot, right? I can, I, I can imagine a lot. I could imagine, uh, Gorfindel, for instance, being sent off, uh, towards the coast, hoping that it would, uh, take the, you know, send Gorfindel off to the havens, um, hoping that, that, that'll get the attention of the scouts, right? And they'll be saying like, hey, you know, um, so right after, you know, the ring arrived in, uh, in Imladris, um, Glorfindel goes herring off towards, uh, towards the Grey Havens. This is it, right? I could totally believe that. Um, but, um, anyway, you know, it's, we don't have any evidence as to what exactly they were doing there in Rivendell after the rest of them left. Um, yes, Nancy, exactly. He would be accompanying Galdor back to the Havens. So, uh, also making sure he doesn't get in any trouble on the way, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly, JJ. He'd, he'd, he'd have to be specially conspicuous, right? But look, to creatures who um, dwell um, at all in the spiritual world, like Gorfindel's pretty darn conspicuous. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, that seems to me very, very plausible. Um 
Connecting with Randul's folk in Mirkwood also suggests they're really covering all the bases here, right? Because, um, you know, we're talking about the northernmost passes, like the, the straight road to Erebor being perhaps not really in play because they're headed south. But straight south doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the question is, where are you going to go south on this side of the mountains or on the other side, right? Um, it might make more sense for them to cross over the passes further in the north and then go down the river all the way, or then um, go through Mirkwood and come down at, at uh, Mordor from the other side. That's also possible, right? Um, so that would seem to be one of the things that they could, um, you know, liaise with Thranduil's folk in Mirkwood about. Hey, so how are conditions in Mirkwood, right? Is it at all safe, to get through here, right? Um, could we do this? You know, could we help to make this happen? Um, Aragorn is gone with Elrond's sons. Um, and of course, we'll learn more later about exactly what that trip was about. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's, th there are definitely a lot of options that they have, and they're trying to figure out what is going to be the safest and best route that will help them to not be spotted most clearly so but the result is cheer up frodo you pro you will probably make quite a long stay here um says gandalf as if he knew exactly the longing that was in frodo's mind uh before he made his choice right um that line has always been very striking to me Right. Um, Frodo has said that he would like to go and explore up in the pine woods and stuff. So it doesn't have to be uh, Gandalf actually, literally reading Frodo's mind during the council. Um, but it is interesting how he is responding directly to that. Um, you will get a chance to be here with Bilbo in Rivendell um, for quite a long stay. Right. Um, you're not going to have to dash straight out. Um yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. JJ says, Sauron thinks they'll send the ring with Galdor, only because Caliborn wasn't at the meeting. Oh, you mean in choosing the, le the, least, uh, the least likely candidate? Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, yes, yes. Now, Flamifer, I agree that Aragorn dragged Gollum north through Mirkwood um, uh, without much trouble from Dal, Dal Guldur not long ago, but that was also before the orcs invaded Mirkwood uh, for the rescue of Gollum. Um, so what have conditions been like since then? Um, if the boundaries of Mirkwood and even the wood itself um, is full of marauding orc parties like the one that attempted to rescue Gollum, um, suspiciously well-informed orc marauding parties, maybe Mirkwood isn't, in fact, the best route to take. And Dol Guldur is that just as while Lothlorien might be a good reason uh, for them to, you know, go across the mountains further north and then head straight down the river uh, towards Lothlorien, um, Dol Guldur is a pretty good reason for them not to go that way, because between the mountains, um, which have a much higher goblin population these days, again, uh, and Dol Guldur, um, it's uh, pretty tricky terrain uh, in through there. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, Dol Guldur is not dormant um, with Sauron and Barad-dûr. Um, he has lieutenants there still. They're still keeping the shop running. Um, there are orcs at Dol Guldur, um, and uh, one of the Nazgul will be sent there. 
Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to be a center of, uh, uh, it's a sufficient military force that there will be um, a significant battle, um, you know, near the same time as the Battle of Pelennor Field. Yep, yep. Um, yes. So the Nazgul were there right before, like they, I think they met up there. Didn't they? I didn't, I didn't know which, I'm trying to remember now. It was only like a few weeks ago that I reread The Hunt for the Ring, but I believe when Tolkien was kind of putting it together in the part of The Hunt for the Ring that I find slightly less problematic, um, the Witch King crosses the river and then heads up and meets up with them at Dol Guldur. Anyway, they're, they're, the, uh, you know, uh, Kamul was up there at uh, Dol Guldur prior to the gathering together and the heading off towards the Shire. Um, but all of the orcs, you know, they weren't by themselves. Like all of the orcs that they were running down there in Dol Guldur were there, um, were still there, presumably, uh, after they left. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arden Crown, that's a wonderful question. Why did Gimli and Legolas stay in Rivendell after the council instead of returning to their homes? Did they know that they would be part of the fellowship? Um, Really great question. Um, First of all, I can't rule it out. Um, I can't rule it out. Um, Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of this. We'll talk about this again when they get volunteered by Elrond later on. Um, When they are named by Elrond, I should say. Um, we'll talk about it then. Um, but don't let me forget this question because it's a really good, they have a, quite a while and it would seem council's over, right? Um, decisions have been made. Why stick around? Um, you know, the Erebor squad, they came, they gave their message. Uh, you know, Glowin's still around, right? Are they hanging around for an, an indefinite period of time? Now, one thing uh, to keep in mind is that um, they're not going to be eager to travel back in the wintertime. They could probably still make it, right, if they set out right away, immediately after the council. Um, but uh, but still, um, we'll talk about that later. It is a great question. It's a great question. Because you'd think once the council was done, they would head home. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, be honest, be honest, and I agree. That is one direction I was just thinking that um, uh, he says, I do think as modern people, we forget that when you make a massive journey, you're not going to just turn around and leave the next day. Yes, exactly. And staying somewhere like when you go on a long journey and you arrive at a place, even just for a short visit, staying for, you know, a minimum of like a month is not weird. Like, staying only a day or two and then leaving again, that's what's weird. Um, that's very, very unusual. Um, so yes, that would be, um, um, that would be very, very normal, especially, again, especially with winter coming up. I mean, it's already October when the Council of Elrond is happening. So, you know, that Elrond would say to Glowen and, you know, his company from Erebor, you know, stay with us over the winter and when spring comes, go back home. 
would be a perfectly normal, hospitable thing for him to do, and it would not be strange for them to accept that hospitality. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I agree, Bjarnason. That was the first thing I was thinking, that uh, um, it seems... I think it would seem less strange um, in this uh, in this context. Um, exactly, yes. As uh, J.J. is recalling on the way back from the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo and Gandalf wintered with Bjorn. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that you do, right? Um, all right. Let's do a second slide. I want to get to the poem. Because winter is coming, in fact. Uh, just like in the... Uh, you know, one of the things that was particularly delightful about my Myth Mood experience this year is that now the phrase winter is coming will no, lo- no longer makes me think of House Stark uh, and Game of Thrones. Uh, I will now always associate it uh, with the Soviet Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, snow and snow, Trifle, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Snow and snow. Um, uh, okay, anyway. Ah, said Sam gloomily, we'll just wait long enough for winter to come. That can't be helped, said Bilbo. It's your fault partly, Frodo, my lad, insisting on waiting for my birthday. A funny way of honoring it, I can't help thinking. Not the day I should have chosen for letting the SBs into Bag End. But there it is. You can't wait now till spring, and you can't go till the reports come back. When winter first begins to bite, and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. But that, I am afraid, will be just your luck. Okay. Um, First thing, Sam. This is not the last time that Sam will interject with a gloomy and despondent comment. Ah, said Sam gloomily, we'll just wait long enough for winter to come. Um, how do we read this? How do we read this? How do we read Sam? Yes, it, Bjorning, it does sound kind of puddle esque right? Um, it also, to, to think of a non-Lewis, uh, to think of a Tolkien parallel, um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of Sonny Sam, the blacksmith uh, from Farmer Giles of Ham. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it is important to notice that Sam is not a particularly cheerful guy. Right. Sam is going to be, by the end of the book, spoiler, Sam is going to be one of the great exemplars of hope. Um, I mean, yeah, he will be one of the people who will most powerfully illustrate what hope means and what hope does uh, in Tolkien. But this is not because he's just a hopeful guy. Um, He does not have a lot of uh, a lot of umdir, right? 
he's not optimistic. He is very frequently anticipating the worst, expecting the worst. We'll wait just long enough for winter to come. Right? This is going to... This is going to be as bad as can be. And Kit, you're right. Sam is anticipating building campfires and cooking in the snow. Um, he is definitely thinking about the practical difficulties of this, right? Uh, of course, one of the things that's interesting about this by itself, right, is that it suggests that Sam is thinking about the journey in a different way than any of the rest of them are in that moment, right? They're all thinking about the quest. They're thinking about setting out for Mordor. Sam's not thinking about Mordor. Sam's thinking about all of the walking through the snow that's going to happen on the way to Mordor, right? First things first um, with, uh, uh, with Sam. And I do think that it's... Um, um, I do think that it's a... Uh, there's, there, there's a pragmatism in it, um, yes. Um, but... Um, and yes, I agree... Bjorn Sonar, in many ways, it is Sam's job to figure out how to how to manage in suboptimal circumstances. Yes, um, um, it is. He is thinking of those kinds of practical things because it's his job to think of practical things. Um, he's Frodo's servant, um, and so can you know? Yes, thinking about um, uh, how to light campfires in the snow and that kind of thing is exactly what he's going to be, uh, uh, what he's going to be thinking about. Um, but yeah, and Ambrosius, you're certainly right that he's not thinking about the glory of being a hero going on a quest. Um, not at all. Nor is he thinking about the probable death at the end of the road. That's the other side of this, right? You could say that he's being more pessimistic than the others. But you could also say that he is being more hopeful, more hopeful in the sense that he's not thinking at all about the really big thing, which is that they're all very likely to die a horrible death in Mordor before they get there. I mean, um, Frodo's tossing off the word hopeless, right, describing this errand as hopeless earlier on, is a good deal more despairing and more importantly despairing than this, right? If he really believes that the errand itself is hopeless, that's kind of a big deal, more of a big deal than Sam's gloominess about the path on the way there, right? Um, And uh, yeah, as JJ said, he's rather nearsighted. I think it's an, an interesting way to think about it. Um, but yeah, it's in its way, he's not expressing hope, but the mere fact that he is not, the mere fact that he's thinking about trekking through the winter, um, shows that he is not just obsessing about the apparent hopelessness of the overall quest that they're on. Um, and I think that 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 tension. One thing that we can begin to see that I think we will see more of from Sam as we move forward. Is he cheerful? Is he hopeful? You know, in a very sort of uh, superficial way? No, he's not. Is he Is he negative? Uh, is he a bit of a downer often? Yeah. Yeah, he kind of is. 
he's being gloomy here and he's kind of spreading the gloom around uh, by bringing this up. And yet he's the one who's kind of focused on the next steps, right? Um, he's not he's not worried about the end of the road. And we will see this continuing to um, uh, continuing to come up, this kind of thing continue to 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 come up um yeah yeah um that can't be helped it's your fault partly frodo my lad insisting on waiting for my birthday a funny way of honoring it i can't help thinking not the day i should have chosen for letting the sbs into bag end but there it is you can't wait now till spring why does he bring this up? His first move, that can't be helped. It's your fault partly, Frodo, my lad. The Frodo, my lad, suggests a, um, I mean, it's, he's speaking affectionately, right? Um, totally hobbitry, Bjorn Osoner, absolutely. He teases Frodo, right? He teases Frodo. It's your fault, right? Um, it's your fault, Frodo. Um, right? Good job. Good job, you know, waiting until, like, why did you wait until late September to start out? You had all summer. And if you'd started right away, we could have set off, uh, you know, in early autumn. And we could have set off by, like, you know, August or something. Um, so he teases Frodo about this. And then he one-ups it, Right? Funny way of honoring my birthday, I can't help thinking. Not the day I should have chosen for letting the SBs into Bag End. Um, and yes, Belongsbon Frodo is is 50, so he's not exactly a lad anymore. But of course, he will always be Bilbo's lad. So uh, that's, of course, perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Rowan, I would agree with Bjorning there. Um, uh Bjorning was, or Rowan was asking if Sam was all Amdir and no Estel, and I agree with Bjorning that it's the other way around. Um all Estelle and no and no Amdir, essentially. Um I think that's what we're gonna see uh later on. Um Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um So why does he bring up letting the Sackville Bagginses into Bag End on his birthday. Technically, of course, as several people pointed out, the day after uh, his birthday. So not exactly on his birthday, but still, um, there's no question that Frodo did juxtapose the two things, right? He insisted on waiting for Bilbo's birthday, um, and he did. So he left the Shire and sold Bag End to the Sackville Bagginses on Bilbo's uh, Bilbo's birthday. <laughs> Green Great Dragon is speculating that SB's perhaps stands for spoon burglars. Um, possibly. Possibly. Um, now, Belongs Banda, I agree that he brings it up in part because he really does not like the SB's. Um, yes, I think so. Um, so, but that means what? This is an earnest dig at Frodo? He's really trying to make Frodo feel bad about letting the 
SB is into Bag End, and on his birthday of all things, right? Is that um, is that really what um, uh, is that really what he's doing here? It does sound, if that's true, that it would be slightly harsh hobbitry, right? I mean, teasing each other is we see that all over the place, right? Um, but it seems a little bit harsh. It seems a little bit harsh. Um, uh, Emily, it does sound to me like a deflection. Right? I, I can't think that this has just been like he's been waiting for a time to drop this one. Right. That like ever since he heard the story, he's been bothered by this. And now it's just finally, you know, uh, boiled over. Right. And he puts in this dig at Frodo. I, I can't believe that that's what happened. That's what's happening here. I mean, first of all, they've had lots of chances. They had a whole long talk about the Shire in the Hall of Fire before. Right. Let's have some real news. Remember, um, I'm sure the sale of Bag End to the Sackville Baggins just came up during that time. Right. And if Bilbo was upset about it, he had lots of opportunities uh, to express that. Um, but um, um, but more, more. It sounds like why now? Right. Why now? I think I think it's a deflection. Right. Um, he's teasing Frodo. It does seem a little bit harsh. Why would he tease him in this harsh kind of way, right? Um, it is funny in retrospect, right? Like, I shall wait in honor of Bilbo for his birthday before I leave the Shire. Um, and um, it, it is a little bit ironic because, of course, had he left earlier, he could have spent, they could have spent their birthday comfortably together uh, in Rivendell, right? Um, but, um, yeah, Lupilia, you're right that Frodo says to Gandalf that it will, you know, or he thinks it's going to be easier for him to leave, right? Because a part of him always feels more like wandering at that time of year. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Matt says if Bilbo's doing anything, he's mock-needling Frodo in a manner that distracts him, grounding him in the petty issues of the Shire rather than the grand sweep of the age. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, it's a little bit harsh, but it's harsh on a completely different level, right? Um, I also wonder if um, if this isn't um, also a... Sorry, sneeze. Um, if he isn't, if this isn't also a bit of a, a softball, right? Um, Frodo could counter this easily, right? Um, if uh, if this were to be enter into a two way hobbitry situation, um, uh, Frodo could uh, could easily respond to this, right? Um, And I think I do think that that's kind of the invitation here. Um, let's uh, let's change the subject, right? To uh, why uh, you let the Sackville Bagginses into Bag End. Um, also, I think there's a way in which the harshness, the apparent harshness of Bilbo's comment there, 
kind of rebounds against himself to some extent. That there's there's something kind of humble in this. That is, there's a certain degree of pettiness in this remark about letting the Sackville Bagginses into Bag End, right? Um, after Bilbo had kept them out. The feud between Bilbo and the Sackville Bagginses is a, a quite petty thing, right? Um, and if it's petty on Otho and Lobelia's part, it's a little bit petty on Bilbo's part, too. And... So again, this is another way in which this feels, from a homitry standpoint, like kind of a softball, right? Um, you know, one could easily say something like, grow up and get over it, Bilbo, right? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this kind of a family feud, like seriously, that's important in any way right now. Um, it's even defensible at all, frankly, Right. To be maintaining that kind of uh, that kind of family feud. Of course, we will see later on the family feud will be resolved um, and it will exactly be resolved when things which are much more obviously important um, arise. Right. Uh, to kind of um, take over the place of them. Um, exactly. Green Great Dragon. Ro- Lobelia's grace is going to be uh, what ends it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I do think, Drowsnake, that Bilbo's offering uh, a distraction from the greater problem at hand by bringing up the SBs. And again, I wonder if there's even a way in which he's almost offering himself to be the butt of a joke, right? I mean, one can imagine people coming back to Bilbo and being like, oh, Bilbo, like, how can you even say that? Like, that's so not fair, right? You can, one could imagine even if Frodo doesn't come back at him, Merry or Pippin coming in to, uh, you know, make a, uh, make a, a witty and insulting comment on, uh, on Frodo's behalf or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So he does seem to be kind of offering that. I, I, that, as Bilbo's motivation for bringing up the Sackville Baggins is here, seems to me much more fitting and much more likely under the circumstances of Bilbo as we've seen him than merely like, I'm going to get a dig in because this has still been really bothering me and I haven't had a chance to yell at you about this yet, Frodo. Um, I, I, I can't think that he's interrupting that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, being petty in an exaggerated manner in order to make Frodo laugh. Um, yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. It feels to me much more right there. Um, and then he leaves it, right? But there it is. You can't wait now till spring, and you can't go till the reports come back. And then he indulges in a poem. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. What do you notice about the poem? What meter's it in? Hobbit meter? Uh huh. When winter first begins to bite, iambic tetrameter all the way, right? Um, in fact, several of these lines are perfect iambic tetrameter. I mean, perfect. 
when pools are black and trees are bare. It does not get more perfect than that. Not only is that an absolutely unvarying eight-syllable line in a perfect iambic tetrameter format. It's not just that, right? Notice also the simplicity of it. It's eight monosyllabic words, right? Um, And more. All of the stressed words, A, start with consonants, hard consonants, pools, black, trees, bear, right? Whereas all of the unstressed words start either with vowels or with WH, a really soft consonant, right? Um, it is literally impossible to misread that line, right? I mean, that is a line which scans itself. It's like um, um, that line is to serious poetry. What a uh, like what a beginner sampler is to embroidery, you know, um, like that is textbook iambic tetrameter. That is how you teach Hobbit meter to people. When pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. And the first one is very similar. When winter first begins to bite, um, uh, similar. It's not as that third line is the one which is just like, holy cow, right? I mean, you see that. And of course, not only do you have the hard consonants, but you have alliteration there too with the two Bs. Um, it's not as just like absolutely perfect uh, in that way. Yeah, Valoria does sound like um, a child's poem to teach them recitation. It sure does. Um, in fact, you know what I can't help but wonder? Bilbo is talking to, is addressing Frodo, but he's responding to Sam, his former pupil, whom he taught poetry. I would bet you anything um, that this verse that he's reciting here is one that Sam knows, is one that he, Bilbo, used when he was teaching Sam his letters. Um sometime during Sam's education with Bilbo. Um, I bet you uh, that he used this and that um, uh, Bilbo, again, he's addressing Frodo, but he's he's aiming this at Sam, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah. Oh, JJ, fine, you're right. It's not quite sure it's fair. JJ's not quite sure it's fair to bet on something that's completely impossible to prove or disprove. It just makes it a safe bet, that's all. Because <laughs> I can't possibly lose my money. So you're right, not quite fair, indeed. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, it does, it definitely sounds, um, it definitely sounds that it, uh, uh, it has that kind of air, right? So we'll, we'll kind of come back to that in a minute. But let's, let's keep looking at the poem itself. Um, when winter first begins to bite, what else do you notice? We talked about the meter, the actual rhythm of the lines. Tell me what else you hear in this poem. 
When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of alliteration. Good. Uh, yeah, let's start with the rhyme scheme, Bjorning. Uh, it's a, that's a, a big, the, the, the big shape of it, right? A-A-B-B. Really simple, right? Um, uh, we've got two couplets, right? Two couplets only. Um, which means, by the way, that um, one of the kind of functions of that is it, it kind of splits the verse in half. Uh, to some extent, right? It doesn't, the rhyme scheme doesn't interweave the lines together, right? We have the first two lines and then the last two lines. So that's one of the uh, sort of inevitable effects of doing it in couplets rather than doing an ABAB um, uh, pattern. But anyway, yes, as several of them, as several of you were talking about, there's, um, there's a lot of alliteration here, especially in that first line. Right when winter first begins to bite, um, we have five primary consonantal sounds. Right, um, when winter and begins to bite, two is technically one, but it's a preposition and an unstressed syllable. Um, we've got the two W's and the two B's with the F in the middle. Right, when winter first begins to bite. So the first is the pivot word in that first line with the, with the alliteration making the, the first, the word first, right? The, 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 the F sound there, the pivot of the line. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night. Um, so we get a repetition of the F uh, leading up to that first rhyme, right? Um, uh, and stones crack in the frosty night. We don't repeat that same pattern, right? Um, we don't repeat the alliterative pattern. In fact, we don't get any alliteration in the second line other than that callback to the F, which was in that prominent pivotal place there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Um, oh, good, yeah, Matt, you're right. Uh, Matt is pointing out that the start of the lines do some interweaving, right? Where we have the... Uh, uh, the winds at the beginning of lines one and three, right? So we get a parallel uh, between the two. Um, notice also how we're getting a lot of buildup. Um, well, we'll come back to the syntax in a minute. First things first. Always start with the sound. I always start with the sound anyway. I start with the sound and the shape. Um, then we can talk about the syntax and then, you know, like what it's actually talking about. But... Okay, and stones crack in the frosty night. Um, a couple of people were talking about onomatopoeia. I agree, crack uh, is a really prominent piece of onomatopoeia there. Um, but more, why else does that word stand out? Do you notice? Crack is a really prominent, I, I think it is the prominent word in that second line. Why? Yes! Exactly. Fourth Dauntless and Brianna Sonner. It breaks the meter for the first time. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, right? Um, that foot is backwards. Uh, after stones should come, your ear is ready for an unstressed syllable. When winter first begins to bite and stones bump, 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 bump. That's what we expect, 
right? But we don't get it. Instead, we get crack. Um, not only a stressed syllable, but, uh, I mean, you can't help but stress that syllable. Um, but also, notice how the vowel sound stands out when winter first begins to bite all those I sounds, right? And I's and short E's in the first line. And stones crack in the frosty night. Crack that ah sound in the middle of that line is uh, unmistakable. It's loud, right? You hear it. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and again, by breaking the meter there, he makes it really super <laughs> jump out, right? By the way, this is why you pay attention to meter. Um, because if you, if you, if you train your ear to attune itself to the basic meter, the basic metrical pattern that a poet is using, then you get a whole new set of cues to notice things, um, that you would miss if you didn't have that. Um, so yes, when winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare... Tis evil in the wild to fare. Um, Tis evil in the wild to fare is still a perfect iambic line. It's really that one place, crack in, is the only place in the entire four lines where the poem really breaks the meter. Um, Though the last line is certainly less metronomic uh, in its uh, beat than line three, for sure. Um... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, Lupilli, I agree. All of the, uh, the, the A sounds are, uh, are really strong uh, in the poem. Yes. Um, because of course, as several of you are pointing out, we pick up on that sound in line three right away when pools are black and trees are bare. Tis evil in the wild to fare. Um, black also is a pivotal word in that third line, right? Um, because, first of all, because of that internal rhyme between crack and black. Crack is the word that jumps out in line two, and then black is right there in the middle of line three, um, right? You know, which our ear catches because of the, the startling uh, crack that we got there in the second line. But also we get alliteration. We had the B alliteration in line one, and we get a B alliteration in line uh, in line three as well. When pools are black and trees are bare. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so notice each of the first three lines has this emphasis on that central word. Which is kind of cool, because that's not every day, right? Um, Often the rhyming word at the end is important. I mean, the fact that it is the rhyming word kind of makes it important. Um, But, um, you know, sometimes at the beginning. um, But to have the central word in the lines be uh, significant sets up... It's interesting. And it sets us up for a new pattern. And what is the result of this pattern? When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. What is the result? The result is it builds us up for the central word in the last line, 
right? Um, we've we have that pattern in our ears now, right? To hit that to to focus on that central word, and in the last line, the wild is the middle is that central place, right? Tis evil in the wild to fare. Um, wild is really where this poem rests. Um, this is not an anti-winter poem, right? This is not winter's awful everywhere. Um, when winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, there are lots of ways we could end this poem, right? Um, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, sit by the fire without a care, for instance, would work, right? Like, uh, you know, this, there, there, there could be lots of cheerful ways we could end this poem, right? Um, but where it gets us to in the end is the wild, exactly as Arna says, stay home. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tis evil in the wild to fare. Don't go out in the wild. In the end, this functions... Um, uh, in the end, this functions as a, uh, um, uh, as a, a lore poem, right? This is the thing that you repeat to yourself to remind yourself, don't go out on a journey in the wild in the wintertime, right? Just like there's probably a similar poem about how you should remember not to start a land war in Asia. Um, but, uh, this is about not going on a long journey in the wild, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Green Great Dragon, you are so right. Um, wild is a wild word, a diphthong and two closing consonants. It is a, it is, we haven't gotten that kind of word. Again, think of the number of simple monosyllables when pools are black and trees are bare. Um, and then we get wild as the center and how different that is from crack and black. Um, uh, so yes, the, 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 the word in the fourth line that the, the, you know, where like the focal point of our attention comes to is, uh, a wild word, right? It is. I agree. It's, uh, it's not like the sound of the word that, uh, like the, the sound that we might've been expecting there at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not a tame word. No, it is definitely not. It is definitely not. Um, and I agree. Evil is not the focus of that last line. Evil is an adjective, right? Um, it is evil to fare in the wild. Like, it's not good. It's not good. Um, um, this is um, a sort of lesser usage of the word evil. I mean, evil is still pretty strong. Um, like, it's it's worse than saying it's bad to fare in the wild. Like, it's evil to fare in the wild. It's That suggests it's a little bit worse. But, um, um, but I agree. The stress is definitely not on evil. The stress is on wild. I mean, it is evil in the wild to fare. Like, that's the that last thing. And notice, not only is that last line... The, what the momentum builds the sound up to, it is also what the momentum of the syntax builds us up to, right? Um, what do we have? How does, what's the syntactic structure of this? It's one sentence, right? It's one sentence with multiple subordinate clauses leading up to one simple statement, right? 
When winter first begins to bite, and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, there's all this, like, when this happens, and this other thing happens, when this other thing also happens, then what? Then what? Right? And then we finally get the independent clause at the end, tis evil in the wild to fare. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Bjarne Sonar, I don't want to emphasize the wild thing too much. I'm not saying that evil gets no stress at all at the end. I mean, it's, those are the, there are three important words in that last line. Tis evil in the wild to fare, right? At the end of the day, that's the moral of this particular poem, right? Don't go faring in the wild. It is evil to fare in the wild in wintertime, people. Like, keep this in mind. Let's, let's not forget that. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. When pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. Um, yes, yes. Um, so those, those three lines are the concept, and because this is the independent clause, right? What's the, what's the, what's the verb? What is the main verb of that sentence? What's the, what's the main verb? Yeah, is, tis is the subject and verb of the sentence, right? Tis. Um, which is, um, which is cool. Um, um, tis evil in the wild fair. Um, okay. Uh, something else I was going to say. What else was I going to say? Oh yeah. Back to the bigger context. Um, Oh, no, wait. I wanted to emphasize a point some of you guys were making. I forget who it was a little while ago, but I thought it was a really cool idea about the prominence of labial consonants in this poem. Super cool. Totally agree. Um, all the B's, B's and P's uh, that happen here. Um, uh, I like that. And yes, crack completely breaks that pattern. Crack really stands out that way with all the... Um, with all the labials uh, that are going on there. Um, yeah, B, W, F are all alliterated on. Yes, uh, exactly. So we've got all this labial stuff going on uh, here in this poem. And it does, it is another one of those things that makes crack um, really, really stand out. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so... This is a fun poem. Um, by the way, one last note on the structure and shape of this poem. I am 100% convinced that Bilbo wrote this poem. Um, 100% convinced that Bilbo wrote this poem because it is in Hobbit structure. And I say that it's not like no other you know, sentient creatures use iambic tetrameter ever. But it's pretty noteworthy. Um, if you collect together, which I did once um, in my Tolkien's poetry class, collect together at Signum, if you, if you collect together all of the rhymes of lore that are included, this is an unusual structure for a rhyme of lore. Um, pretty commonly, um, there is more... Um, trochee involved um, than in any other subset 
of uh, of Tolkien's poetry. Um, and uh, anyway, so I um, I I think that this is designed to be a Hobbit poem of lore, as opposed to merely a translation of an Elvish poem of lore. And Bilbo is the one who comes out with it. It's possible, of course, that he's reciting a traditional Hobbit, um, you know, rhyme of lore, except it's possible. Yes. So, Anna, it is possible that some other Hobbit could have written it long ago. Um, it is possible. But I don't think so. Uh, now, we do have evidence that some sayings from older and more adventurous times still survived, even in the comparatively staid shire of Bilbo's youth. Um, we can tell from the kinds of expressions that Bungo Baggins apparently used to say about never laughing at live dragons and that kind of thing. Or, you know, um, I... There were dragon-related sayings, remember, that Bilbo is quoting his father as saying, though he, Bilbo, is certain that it was not from personal experience. Every worm has its weak spot, right? That was one of Bungo's. Um, so, um, so yes, it's, um, it's, it's, fairly, uh, it's fairly clear, I think, that some of that lore survives. Um, but I don't think that... I don't see much evidence that rhymes of this kind were passed down. What's more, Fourth Dauntless is exactly where I was just going. Um, if this is a rhyme of lore, it's not much of one. It doesn't tell you anything you'd have a difficult time remembering. Yes, normally rhymes of lore, um, uh, you know, are things like what Gandalf recites to himself, right? Um you know, what brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea? That 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 verse is the one I'm, I'm talking about. Um, rhymes of lore or, you know, that other rhyme of lore that we've that we've talked about. Um, uh, you know, three rings for the Elven Kings, etc., etc. Um, that's also a rhyme of lore. Um, yes, rhymes of lore normally are a way of encoding lore right? Encoding important information in ways that people will remember. That's not what this is. I agree with several of you saying that it, um, it sounds more almost like a riddle. It certainly has a similar shape to some of the riddles that Bilbo and Gollum were using. Um, but at the same time, um, it's not riddling, right? There's no riddle to it at all. I think that this is a piece. This is why I think this is a piece of Bilbo's verse. I don't think that this is, um, it's possible. This could be handed down from Hobbit antiquity. I can't prove it. Can't prove it. But here we go, JJ. I'm, I'm going to lay money on something that's unprovable again. I don't think it is. And the reason I don't think it is, um, is that this, this just to me sounds like Bilbo. And what's more, again, I think of the context. Why does he recite a winter poem here. Well, because he's Bilbo and he outs with poems at, you know, the, at the, you know, at the darndest times. Um, sure. I can kind of get that here too. But, um, but again, I think he's responding to Sam. This is where I come back to this. Um, and just to the whole tone of it, this sounds like a kid's verse, not like 
you know, a verse of lore that lore masters would hand. It doesn't sound like that at all. This sounds like a rhyme out of a kid's book, even out of a how-to-read kid's book. When pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare, right? That sounds exactly like a poem that, I, in my head, Bilbo wrote a little, like, um, uh, you know, primer for Sam and, uh, and, and, you know, probably other kids uh, in Hobbiton. And this is one of the uh, poems uh, that he that he wrote to help them learn how to read. Um, it just that sounds exactly exactly like this. Um, or rather, I should say that's exactly what this sounds like to me. Can't you see this? Can't you see this poem on a picture? Yeah, sure. Maybe with like uh, some watercolor around it, right? Of like uh, you know. Um, uh, wind-driven snow, right? And somebody, like, walking along, trying to block the... You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, <laughs> Valoria could absolutely see it cross-stitched, yeah. But I'm imagining it in, like, a picture book, right? Um, um, especially... Now, you might ask, why would he be doing poems at all when he's teaching them to read? And my answer is because Sam is his pupil, right? And Sam, of course, uh, would have been very quick to learn lines. that We, we, we can see what a good pupil uh, Sam was of Bilbo's uh, poetry. Um, so I absolutely do think um, that um, this sounds to me, if it isn't, it certainly could easily be. Um, one of the lessons that he had written for Sam. And under the circumstances, I really love the idea that that's what's going on here. That he's kind of... I see Bilbo exchanging a private smile with Sam here, right? Because remember, he's not just responding to Frodo. He's responding to Sam. And he's not just responding to Sam. He's responding to Sam's gloomy pronouncement. He's having it... This is hobbitry. Hobbitry, I think, to Sam. We'll wait just long enough for winter to come. And Bilbo's like, ah, I bet I know what you're thinking right now, right? When winter first begins to bite. Am I right? Am I right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Rowan says, not in the text, but Sam is putting his hands behind his back. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I think this is an inside joke with Sam. But that, I'm afraid, will be just your luck. He says cheerfully and kind of teasingly, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, exactly, Rachel. I like that. Rachel and uh, uh, YouTube says a hobbit's uh, a, a hobbit's garden of verses. Exactly. That's just exactly what I uh, imagine Bilbo wrote uh, for Sam. And then, can't you see it? Um, like later versions of it, you know, later on when you know Sam proved to be uh, uh, such an apt. Uh, have such an apt ear for poetry. Um, and by the way, in case you're wondering what evidence we have for that, I think we have plenty of evidence, right? Uh, that Sam has a, a sharp, not only a sharp ear for, but a love of poetry. Not only his recitation of Bilbo's poem, um, you know, the Gilgalad poem, but also his composition of his own poem, right? The troll song uh, that he sings, uh, not to mention his 
comments on uh, Gimli's poem, right? The Moria poem. I should like to learn it, right? As he's saying, this is a thing that Sam does. I like that. I should like to learn it, right? And of course, what we were saying way back when, right? Back in chapter, what was it? Back in chapter two, um, when he begins himself to pass into a chanting and lyrical mode in the middle of his conversation with Ted Sandyman, sailing, they're sailing, sailing, sailing away and leaving us. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the recitation of the Oliphant song. So, I mean, yeah, there's uh, all kinds of reasons. to. And when Sam is looking for comfort, right? When he is near despair at what he believes to be the end of his road, what does he do? He sings song, right? He recites poetry. This is, that's what Sam does, right? So I think there's a lot of reason to believe that Sam has a, uh, a great love for uh, and aptitude for uh, verse and poems. Um, uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, now, Drowsnake, that's a fascinating question. Is this the first instance of Sam being included in hobbitry? Hmm... Hmm. I don't remember. Well, there's... No. Pippin's given it to him before. I, I, Pippin is is clearly teasing Sam when he's like... Remember that morning when he's like, you know, Sam, you know, have you got the water hot? Um, he's teasing Sam there, right? That's definitely hobbitry uh, at Sam's expense. Um, Brick Tales, I do agree. I think that there's some back at Crick Hollow. Um, they're teasing Sam about, um, uh, you know, him going on parole, right, uh, from being their investigator and stuff. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's the, uh, there's definitely, um, so, but I agree that there's less. Um, he is not so much a target of the hobbitry as, uh, as the others, perhaps, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, he dried up musical. Exactly, that's definitely a hobbitry comment. Um, yeah. Um, now, Fourth Dauntless says Sam doesn't get it from Frodo, which makes Bilbo an unusual source. That's true, um, but Bilbo's his old teacher, so Bilbo and Sam have a different relationship, right? Sam is Frodo's servant. Um, you know, they, uh, Frodo's not going to tease Sam in that same way, right? Um, he's not going to treat Sam like that. But to Bilbo, to Bilbo, Sam is just his, uh, is his former pupil. And that's quite a different relationship. Okay. Well, surprise, surprise. The poem took me longer than usual. Uh, I, I didn't, I'm, I'm going over time and I shouldn't do. Um, but, uh, we'll, uh, but we still pretty much got through two slides, including a poem, I would add, right? Which is like kind of something. But I guess it doesn't really count as an impressive accomplishment if uh, if I go over time. But anyway, I should let you guys go. It is, uh, uh, it is later than it should be. Uh, thank you for joining me again. As I said, I'll be back. I'll be here the next two weeks, first two weeks of August. Um, I will be... Um, I'll be here as normal. Um, I'm going to be going away in the middle of August. So the last two uh, Tuesdays of August, I'll be away again. I'll be road tripping to North Dakota and back with my son. Um, 
uh, for the whole college drop-off thing. Uh, but, uh, but for the next two weeks after this, I will be here. So um, I, uh, for those of you who will not be joining us on the field trip, I will see you then. Uh, and for the rest of you, let us. it is time to go to a new area as we have uh, finished um, uh, the, um, the place where we were. Oh, hang on a second. That's just not what I want to do. Um, anyway, how are you, Valori? Doing all right. I, I'm so happy we were on the same wa wavelength for that because, like, the, the minute I started thinking about it and then I thought of Child's poem, I immediately saw Sam standing there staring at the ceiling, hands behind his back, going, When winter first begins to bite <laughs> on stones right. crack in the frosty night, when he's nine years old or something. Absolutely. <laughs> Just... Absolutely. Yeah, no, I bet you Sam learned, you're right. I, I bet you Sam learned that when he was, um, you know, definitely in single digits. No questions. <laughs> no questions. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Um, I love that. Uh, I love that image. Um, and uh, especially and it's especially touching since I bet you that nobody else, possibly even Frodo in the room gets it like that's like an inside. That would be an inside joke just between Bilbo and Sam. Um, yeah, they're moneyed families. They would have learned their letters from probably like tutors and stuff yeah yeah they, they certainly w wouldn't have been in wouldn't have been in class with sam yeah 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 um yeah now jj asks a very attractive question did sam learn it from bilbo or did he compose it for bilbo as part of his lessons that would be even more fun if sam had written that poem um but oh, like i think probably probably the other way around it doesn't sound yeah. much like Sam again. If if with the troll song as uh, as our uh, our marker for what uh, authentic Sam verse sounds like, uh, it yeah. doesn't sound that much like Sam. Um, All right, so we're going back to uh, looks like Lindelby over here. Yeah, so we're gonna go back to Lindelby, and then we're gonna we're gonna stable master over uh, up to by Fromsberg and and then head north. We're gonna go up to. Uh, um, up towards Gundabad, since we're most of the way there. And, of course, we still have a ways before we set off from uh, from Rivendell. So we're going to wait till the okay. company sets off from Rivendell before we go to Eregion. Yeah, oh, so, got, yeah. Around. So Bricktails was suggesting that this contraption on the porch here uh, wow. is a, 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 a machine involved in rope making. Oh, yeah, I see. You'd have the rope at each of the three corners, and it would sort of marry it together. And the crank could be to twist and tighten? That does explain why the crank is going in a different direction. Right, right. Because you could spin it one way and then spin it the other way. Yeah. If you need to. Yep, no, that's a good call. I think that that's, that's certainly a better theory than anything I had. So, uh, oh, yeah. I like that. Okay, so hang on. I'm looking at the map because yeah, this is where we want to go. We want to go up to uh, to uh, Hlithseld up here, um, and uh, I think let's see where we can get from our uh, the stable master over here. We have a, the horse, or did we have to unlock it to see the horse? I seem to recall seeing a phantom icon and then nothing. Oh wait, did we not have a horse? Oh wait, it's up here. I don't know. I'm going the wrong it? way. All right. Going the wrong way. First of all, I should not go on foot. Um, oh, the stable in Lindelby is quest locked. Oh dear. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I was afraid of that. Okay. Right. Well, well that's inconvenient. So much for that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, I see. It's right up there. Yep. 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 He's in hiding. 
Okay, right. Yeah, no. No horse. Fine. We'll just ride then. Yep, I guess we're doing this the uh, the hard way. Exactly. Back through the pass. So I had a sort of a exploring Lord of the Rings uh, session myself on on my car, family car trip because uh, my husband wanted to listen to the Andy Zirkus performance of The Hobbit. Uh -huh. Sure. The audiobook. And I was, at first I thought we were just going to enjoy it and stuff like that. But he kept pausing it and going, explain that. <laughs> Tell me what that means. Like, what? It's like, yeah, no, this is, why, why is this important? Is this a normal thing for dwarves? What's the history behind this? So I kind of had my my own little professor thing going on there. I, I was That's talking good. myself horse on the way back. Yeah, it's like, this is good practice, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, I know that's I fun. To, it's fun. The whole, why is, why is Elrond so amazing there? And I'm just like, okay, imagine this is the Muppets or something like that. And the Muppets are going on this big journey and they found their way to this big fancy hotel at halfway of their journey. And there... At the hotel desk, welcoming to his hotel is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's Elrond. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know it's been so, fun. I just, uh, I was actually, I was like just about to do something else before the start of class. It was like I had like a little bit of time before the start of class. I was just about to like do this other thing on my task list when um, uh, I was interrupted by a text from upstairs. I had to go upstairs because uh, I was I was needed in order to answer the question about uh, uh, like it, the half elven and like uh, you know like my son was doing math and he's like so hang on a second isn't Arwen like a ten eighteenths elf or ten sixteenths elf and or no a thirteen sixteenths elf and uh, like what you know so he was like doing a genetic uh, uh, analysis and I'm like yeah it doesn't really work that way so we talked yeah. about the half elven and the choice of the half elven and yeah and, I'm and then like, the two yeah. half elves or the half elves but yeah I got it Parents. yeah exactly um, more of a state of mind yeah exactly. Yeah, it, well, it's really, I mean, and at the end of the day, it's kind of a, you know, I mean, it's kind of a binary situation, you know? I mean, like, it's, you can't actually be a half-elf in one sense, oh. right? I mean, like, you're either yeah. mortal or you're not. I mean, it's, it's uh, in a way, you know, my son and I and my wife got to joking about this, you know, being like imagining somebody who is like, uh, you know, um, like Aragorn's kin, you know, one of the descendants of Numenor, who is like, well, I'm a... Uh, I'm part elf, but uh, I'm only, you know, all right, down to the river here now at this point. Um, I'm part elf, but I'm only, you know, like, like my my my, uh, my right big toe is going to live forever, but the rest of me is mortal. You know, like it's... It well, that's what those like hands in the barrows are. Okay, I got you. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what the hands in the barrow are. Okay, so I guess we just what, go up the slope till we find the, the road again? Yeah, I got it. Um... I'm afraid that we kind of jumped down here, didn't we? Yeah, D I have no idea got how to get back up there. Ideas on that one. Really not sure. I thought I was following D May, and then I was following Caressa, and then I was following Greenstand. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know if I'm following them or they're oh, following dear. me. I'm really yeah. confused. Because we've got to get up there, don't we? Uh, oh, great. We're on a cliff and we can't get up. Great. Yeah. We hmm. can follow this For river to the north. Uh, to the east. Yeah. Yeah. I, gonna, oh, I was okay. just going to dismount, but fortunately the bat took care of that for me. Um, oh, yeah. I need to change my title to easily lost, too. All right. I'm going back to the river. 
Alright. When in doubt, go back to the river. We'll have to go back to the river and follow the river along till we get to... Um... That's more of a bog, though, isn't it? It is. Follow the bouncing guardian. Oh, okay. Thank you, Cressa. You're welcome. Alright. Right. Could you add uh, Saginaw uh, so Hollow can join us, please? Oh, yep. Oh, he, he's uh, the one who's waiting for us at our destination, very patiently. I hope so. Uh, hmm. Oh, they, dear. I seem to have wandered away from the group. <laughs> Come to the north. To the north. Okay. Oh, no, so here nope, we are. wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. That's I'm south. going south, but that's okay. All right. All right so this north. is, hang on, I think I found, well, I found, uh -oh. yes, I found that bridge. Oh, There's that okay. dwarf bridge. Right, but I can't get up there. So we can go north from here? We can get there from down here? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so we, do we take this angle up towards the towards the northeast now? Is there yeah. is is this the right pass? The right the right road to the right pass? It will get us there, yes. Okay. Okay. Nice to see a nice gentle slope headed uphill. That's at least kind of promising. Oh yeah, uh, Ro Rosie Lass needs to be added as well. Yep, got her. Great. All right. So my goal, our goal for the evening, clearly, is <laughs> to find a new milestone. <laughs> At the very least, I'm going to milestone Hlithseld on the way. <laughs> we sure don't want to do this again. Yeah. Running, 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 running. I think that, oh yeah, the road. I think we found the road. Oh, yes. Man, we're not even in Markwood and we're getting off the road. It's the road. Hooray. Huzzah. Oh, okay. I'm going to bed. Hunter's doing this thing. All right. Oh. Stupid war steed. I mean, we're still in combat. Somewhere, somebody is still in combat. Okay. So, this is the fork in the road, right? Oh, he found me. Hang on. Right, Everybody left me behind. Oh, dear. Are you are you, you lost in the world? Okay. Oh, he get me, he get me, he get me. <laughs> are you done me, please? Okay. Alright. Let's see, hang on a second. Let me cheat and look up at the Elder Slade oh. and see. Okay, so we're actually we're gonna be pretty close to a stable master up there, right? Alright. Okay, so then I will not go to Hithseld. Let's just go the straight path here. Right. Make it so. Let's take the right-hand fork. No, it's the left-hand fork still. Yeah, the, the, yeah. That's, we're not going to the. Air, we're not. Yeah, we're we're still going up this way. Yeah. Okay. I thought you meant your other right. 
No, no, no. I was think I was because there are two forks in the road. That's the one that goes off towards, yeah, uh, towards the dwarf mountains. Here we go. Here we go. But the card trip was really interesting because it'd be little things like, uh, you know, quick, give me the entire history of Numenor now. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, summed up in a, a Twitter version. Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's an excellent way to pass a car trip. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was more fun than I thought. It got to the point where I could actually catch the kids uh, lowering their headphones and trying to listen in on some of it. So. Oh, there you I go. Was, yeah, if you can get your kids interested, you know. Okay, I'm doing the uh, milestone here just in case. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case something disastrous happens. And it will. <laughs> and it, but I want it to guarantee I'm not going to have to ride all the way from Windleby again. So there we go. Okay, and wait a second. I think it didn't take. Bind. Yes. Okay. There we go. All right. Stop. We should be fine, but yeah. just in case. All right. So this is where now we go. Right, we go back down and yeah, then around. I saw I saw where the fork in the road was. Okay. Down here, and that's this one. Oh yes, you got fancy dressage horse thing. Right. Okay. There's Saginaw. There's Saginaw. Saginaw. There we go. And All right. That's yep, it. Got it. Finally waiting. We finally caught I'll, up with I'll it. I'll set out when we stop moving. Because otherwise I'm going to get stuck behind, dismounted, and attacked by an orc again. It'll be fun. It's hard to be an administrator on horseback in combat. <laughs> Even Galdor would have had trouble with that. Right. Well, I know if uh, just as Frodo is... Uh, looking forward to getting up into the pine woods up on the hills. I'm looking forward to get up and getting up into those dwarf ruins up in the hills. But wait a second. Yes. I yeah. see some kind of construction. Oh, Is that just... Oh, giants! Big. That's what kind of construction it would appear to be. Yeah. Big giant. Who's this guy? Herg? Hregmod. 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 He's got an accent on the second half. Ah. Um, okay. What we want to do about this? Well, um, explore, but here, let's right. see. Let's just have a peek. No, actually, we need the healer over here. So, be over there. Okay. okay. So we see the normal Lotro giantish. Stone block constructions with leather flaps for doors. Yeah, and I'm getting flashbacks to the Misty Mountains here. Yeah, kind of. Um, we are in the Misty Mountains. Oh, well, well, yeah. I have, right, that's right. The Misty Mountains. Yeah, the um, Misty Mountains. I got booted like a golf ball. Ah! Though these stones are different. These uh -oh. stones are much more sharply cut than the yeah, ones in the, in the Misty shot. Mountains. He one shot me. Where are you, Corey? Oh, I'm Those up next to the giants by the. I'm up to Mr. Stone Giant Rockbreaker up here. Oh, dang. So they're much better stone cutters, these giants, unless they're repurposing stones. But I don't think so, because these stones no, are 
really big. Yeah. And the other ruins that we've seen have all used smaller bricks. Hmm. Uh, have they? This looks like the ones we saw in, uh, what was it, uh, Enidwaith? Maybe. But no, I, I, I just mean... I, bricks I, I, are better I, constructed. I just mean the local ruins. Like, compared to the other ruins we've seen. So, like, basically there are two options, right? Either the, either the giants cut these stones themselves, or they are repurposing cut stones elsewhere, and goodness knows, with all the ruins around, there's plenty of places where they could just get cut stones and haul them here and build with them, right? I guess we'd have to see how the dwarves cut, what their stones look like for these. Right. But the other ruins we've seen, like the one just down the hill, where we just bound that milestone in Hrithseld oh, yeah. or whatever, were much smaller bricks than this. So oh, yes. either these giants are cutting these stones themselves, or they're deriving these from a completely different place, you know, completely different than we've seen. Look at their skin. Their skin is all cracked. Didn't we like see rock. that before? In the like that that they seem to be moving more towards like, hey, these guys might be kind of like made of rock. Yeah, yeah, these definitely look more like the uh, throwing rocks as footballs kind of giants. Mm-hmm. Yes, but they look they they're humanoid still, but they're did they am I remembering correctly that they changed the texture of the giants like way back in the troll fells and everything like all the original giants to make them look more like this? I would have to I would have to see for they sure. They did a little bit but not to this extreme. Right. Yeah, not I, to this I, extreme. I think a lot of them still wearing sort of uh, you know, stocking caps and later hosen. Right. And I I remember I remember th- th- seeing this kind of skin texture like that looking like rock itself um in Nurzum during the Wildermore um quest line but um but yeah it seems to be what we're seeing here seems to be a representing a shift in how like Lotra is choosing to represent the stone giants which is Do you fine. remember the giants uh, on the Gladden mirror? Yeah, vaguely. That's what I was trying to recall. They looked like this, didn't they? Uh, I think so, yes. I think they did. I think these are similar to those. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye out for bricks like that, but I still think these guys are cutting their own bricks. Oops, yeah, but also, I've lost it's, the it's road. It's the perfect size for them. News. It's down this it way. Is. To the west. Okay. Yeah, having left the path in order to explore and look more closely at giantish architecture. I've... That's never proven bad in any of Tolkien's stories, has it? No. No. Oh, is this uh, what's I his don't... face? Yeah. yeah, it's the big guy. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. All right. So now we're coming up on an obviously dwarfish bridge. Up oh, and and a badger. There we go. <laughs> you're getting it. You're getting a badger just to add insult to injury there. Yeah, I know. It's like at that it's point, it's just love juice on the paper cut. Just badger yeah. just savaging me. Ah. Okay. Ooh. All right. So when we get up to this bridge, notice what's immediately interesting about this bridge. Look at the arches. Uh, yeah, the, the sort of uh, the plates the line up. 
Oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, no, wait, not in the middle. But, of course, in its defense, that one is hanging there. But these yeah. plates line up. So, yeah, the, uh, the that Joker dwarf engineer. Um, the incompetent one. Yeah, or the practical yeah. Joker, which I prefer to think. Snorri um, the Joker. Yeah. Okay, so we are drawing up near to those ruins. So... The first interesting thing that I see is how very similar. Whoa, it's a good thing there was a railing there. Yeah. Would have totally lost see, it. The dwarves know how to build things with workplace safety in mind. But no, this. You haven't been to Moria, right? Oh, yeah, right, no, exactly. Well, okay, except for the goats. The goats running that through Moria is just like, that is the worst wild mass ever. Okay. All right. So we um we made it up to the Elder Slate, so that's exciting. Oh. Now let's get over to what's it called? Uh Anach Korfu over there, which is I think our dwarf ruins, right? Yeah. Mm. Woohoo. Oh look, there are Drakes. Okay, so we're still on I'm still thinking Skatha the Wormish thoughts here. Yeah. Um, oh, look at that flying all over the place. Look at him landing in a puff of dust there, kicked up Ugh. by his wings. Uh, we're interested in the one swooping down on us. Oh, yeah, that one just swooped down a little, us. a little bit ago. Fighting our horses. Oh, dear. Oh, I see you must have killed one. I just uh, started the Dragon Slayer deed. Yep. Weren't me. Okay, oh, I seem to be going the wrong I, way, however. I missed the turn. There was a turn off to a stable master? Yep. Is there a, is there a milestone down there, too? Yes. Oh, this is the good. quest hub for the Elder Slade. Excellent. Although, oh, right, uh, it was a switch back up yeah. the hill. No wonder I missed it. Oh, them and their switchbacks. Okay. All right, I'm not even. Oh wow, this is very much like uh, to the gold digging place. Oh, the uh, buried treasure map thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, here we are. We're, here's the stable master, at least. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, there we go. And this is a far-ranging stable master, so you can get here from Bree, no matter your level. Nice. Ooh, also That's good. That's very convenient. Yeah, this is uh, the way We're... this place works is this is the first time they use the mission technology, which is accessible to anybody over level 20. Oh, yeah. Where's the milestone? Uh -huh. Here, here near the task thingy. board. No. Task board. No, nope, nope, nope. Not seeing it. Uh, oh, well. Possibly they I don't see have a bat in a tree that. with a quest ring. The stable yeah, master, right. at least, will do the trick. Yeah, we got Since it. Since we can get here from Bree, it's good mm -hmm. enough. Okay, cool. Well, we'll plan to do that next week. Then we will ride right. here from Bree, and we will pick up here. I'm not even going to tempt myself into looking at the ruins because it's super late. Um, but um, I will. Uh, we will pick up here next time and. Um, uh, explore and see what we see here in these ruins. Um, 
So cool. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. We're going to, so we'll explore these dwarf ruins and then we'll get up around the corner. We got worms, worms, worms groff up here, which sounds very promising. Uh, and then up towards the gates of Gundabad. So uh, then meanwhile, we'll see. Oh, and there's Karbronach up here, which is sure not appearing on this map. That's pretty cool. All right. Anyway. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will be back next week for more exploration up here, up here in the Elder Slade, and uh, I will see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye now. Bye.